21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Ewan, thank you very much for finally being on my show. Your busy schedule um, has, uh, and my busy schedule, it's been hard to find a time. We've talked about you being on the podcast. It's half past nine on a Friday night in Edinburgh. It's that hard. And we're, <laughs> we're recording live in person. Yes. So that makes it even better. So With a Yoichi whiskey? Yes. It's not bad. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> So thank you very much. Um, you know, your work has, has meant a lot to me, and I first came across your work when I was in Nanjing. Um, so I've, I've followed your work over the years, and I'm in, really interested in talking to you about how your work has changed and what continues to um, kind of motivate you and, and kind of fire you up to continue to learn and be your best. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking about those things. But to give people some backstory... Can you just, uh, you know, just share whatever you want to share about the work that you do mm. and uh, what you're striving to accomplish the, through your work? The work we do today is all about, first and foremost, getting people to work better in teams together, which involves them understanding what role they have to play in their team and knowing what they're really good at and getting better at it and having the creative confidence to find their place with other people in a team. And that's it. That That is the... the purpose of our, our team, of our comp- little company. And although we're a little company, we're having, uh, I think in the past two years, more success than we've had in the five years before that, uh, actually achieving that with huge, huge global organisations and companies mm-hmm. with tiny primary schools in the outback of Australia yeah. and everything in between. And I think we've, we're beginning to find our sweet spot in achieving that goal of getting teams to work together yeah and uh the little company's name a uh, notosh notosh yeah. the little little company with with a profound impact and uh when you think about the impact that your company is having um what would you say are the 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 big ideas behind what you do regardless if yeah. you're working with schools or whoever it is but what is the impact factor um, that you think you bring it, it's quite easy uh, because we, we get told it very often by people after the fact. What The first thing is helping people see stuff they'd never seen before. Often problems, often it's not a positive experience necessarily to see things you've never seen before. Helping them spot problems they've never spotted. Um, the fun bit, helping them come up with amazing ideas to resolve it. And in a big company, a big engineering company like Tusencrip, that involves um, things like sustaining the planet's future by providing the kind of green energy sources that we want, but resolving the small matter of how you get that energy to people's homes without losing any. No one's tried to tackle that problem in earnest, and, and, and we were able to run a 16-week process that found multiple answers to that, and they're working on it now. And it, and it should be in market really soon too. That's the exciting part. And that's one week. And then the next week I'm with an international school. And, and you know, I'm a state school boy. So when you say international school, people think, oh, rich, privileged. They can mm-hmm. work it out themselves. Well, actually, most of these schools 
are reaching the goals they set for five years ahead. They're reaching them within two years. And then they're left with this funny period where they don't really know what they're doing or why they're doing it. And then Would you describe that as being an a internal conflict in the yeah. organization that they're trying to work their way through? Yeah. And they don't know. They see... Um, or internal tension, I should say, as opposed to... Conflict. Yeah, it's more tension. It's yeah. a headache. We often ask, The first question I always ask people is, what's your headache? Yeah. And, and it's the best way to open a conversation. What's your, what's your headache? And out comes all this stuff that's often to do with great success having almost just happened. And then that feeling of now what? And people don't plan for the now what. They're so busy trying to reach the goal that they set themselves. And, and international schools always go by five-year plans. We're doing a really good job, I think, in stopping people doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why five years? You know, if you've got a really worthwhile goal, it might take you a lifetime. If it's really worthwhile, but you've got a really talented staff, then you might make it in two years. But it's just a question of everyone knowing why they're there and what they're striving for. And we're really good at helping schools work that out um, and, and companies too. And I think the biggest realisation from all that international schools work that I personally have been involved in a lot of in the last few years is that everyone can do with help. Everyone can do with a critical friend. And I think that five years ago, when I was just a couple of years into this kind of work, I probably believed that there were directors of school who knew better than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told by a few of them that they did know better than yeah. me. And I realised that, no, I was right. Um, there's always something new to learn and there's always something new to discover. And I've been very lucky with, um, maybe very lucky indeed, actually, with the people who've come to say, can you work with us? There's every client has has made us a better as a team, and we've learned so much working with them that now we're able to benefit that huge group of state schools, of state-funded normal schools, if you like, to become exceptional yeah. using the same lessons from independent and international schools, but also paying attention to what makes a good local school yeah. special, and and you know nothing beats that. Yeah, and when I hear you, you've said we uh, a number of times here, yeah. so. No, Tosh, I want you to take everybody through kind of the vision that you had for No, Tosh and that the first seeds um, when you you were doing your, your old work before mm-hmm. No, Tosh. What um, kind of inspired those seeds for No, Tosh to begin to flourish and to become a reality? Two big things informed it. One it was the job before the job that I had before I started No, Tosh. So I was what they, they grandly called the National Advisor to, on Learning and Technology Futures, which I think was a, a smart way to pay me less money than they probably yeah. should have to do a job that, that no one really wanted me to do. I spent the best part of three years creating the most amazing programmes with colleagues all over Scotland and in East Lothian, people who are still there today slugging it out and producing really innovative work. Scotland um, in 2005-2006 was probably the world's best place to go for educational technology thanks to those people and then in the last year of that of that job I didn't think it was the last year at the time but it became the last year I just realised that I was surrounded by civil servants who were in it for themselves and all they wanted was to see their vision ergo their ego satisfied with whatever was produced and the result was we were wasting um, millions of pounds of public money 
on technology that was the antithesis of what everyone in the real world was using to connect, mm -hmm. to share, to be open. Scotland was busy creating a, a closed, hard to get into, uh, forget your password, it's going to take you a week to find out what it should have yeah. been system. And so um, at the time, um, I was I, I was the equivalent of a fart in an elevator. No one wanted to have my company um, <laughs> because I was telling them stuff they didn't want to hear. Yeah. Um, I did so in national newspapers when I left the government and was uh, um, about two years later, well, in the interim, I went off to work for TV. I thought, stuff education. Stuff. Set the scene. What, yeah. what year was this? Ah, 2008. So not that long ago. Is that right? 2008, yeah. But when you... And, and I don't mean to interrupt you, no. but I'm, I'm interested to, to know more about that kind of the internal tension within yourself or the nudge that you felt because oftentimes oh, the people nudge, feel that they need to be doing something different. But the nudge was... the nudge. I was getting nudged left, right and centre. Within yourself? And from outside. The, the big nudge from outside was one that made me say stuff education. Yeah. Uh, because all I saw of education... I I I'd spent two years working with great teachers and in this final year spent my life working with civil servants. Yeah. It's enough to turn anyone off. Because what do you see? You see people who, who have no passion for young people who've never been in a classroom or it was a long time since they have been. And it was so long ago that actually they've forgotten what it's about. And, and they would be the first to say, it's all about the children. But their actions betrayed them. So a disconnect with their, their behaviour and, and uh, their actions and the reality of the current demands of... Yeah. And I, I actually went into a really negative space. You can probably hear it in my voice, actually, as I talk about it. Where I was convinced that... Um, I actually convinced myself that everything that we were doing in classes, everything we were proposing, was maybe a fraud. That this digital technology stuff was just a, a a small fad. It would pass, and you know maybe actually it was all wrong. Maybe I should just concentrate on on uh, going back and teaching French and and, and doing good work there. Uh, I didn't I, I, because I probably I have a anyone who knows me. I've got an ego like anyone else. So I thought no, I'll go and get some work in education, but away from this. And I had the worst job interview of my life down in London for a big education job with an organisation that shall remain nameless. Um, they didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know what they wanted. I was there for an hour and a half in a job interview in a suit. It was the last time I ever wore a suit, yeah. other than family weddings. And um, I left, and at the time I'd been ad advising uh, Channel 4 Education about their move from television programmes that no one watched no one apart from unemployed people mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, kids who should have been at school but weren't and moving it into video games and online and social networking, very early stages of social networking. And Matt Locke um, uh, had really pioneered a lot of that, had, had brought me into that team along with, uh, um, I mean, some amazing people um, from, the, from, the, from the business world, startup world, from digital, from education. Yeah, I went. I Did went you for learn a lot. I learned. A, I was learning a bit, but I, I felt I was probably contributing more yeah. at the time. But I got I got nice trips, and I got to go to London for free, and it also meant I got access to free coffee at Channel Four. So after this absolute nightmare of a job interview, I went to the office of Channel Four for a free coffee, and while I was sat there, John Gisby, who was who had just come a few years before from Yahoo as their managing director of Europe. You remember Yahoo? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and um, he, he had joined Channel 4 as the director of digital. 
And he said, oh, why did you not apply for our job in Glasgow? And I didn't even know they had a job in Glasgow. I didn't know they had an office in Glasgow. Yeah. I went for coffee the next morning with Stuart Cosgrove. Uh, most people in Scotland don't know that Stuart Cosgrove ever worked for Channel 4 because he is the host of Scotland's most popular radio show on the BBC, on the, comp- on the competitor channel. It's called Off the Ball. It's the world's worst programme yeah. about football. <laughs> and uh, Stuart, just we just jammed for a morning about what could be in the dig- digital world connected to TV. And I landed this job as a digital commissioner. Nothing to do with education. And for the best part of 19, 20 months, I went and helped find £50 million to invest in digital and then did my best to invest as much of it as possible everywhere from Newcastle upwards in in Britain. And I learned the hard way how to find investment money, how to negotiate contracts, how to uh, set up an investment, how to find talent, how to nurture it, how to say no 3,950 times a year. Um, I learned all of that by doing it. And it was one of the hardest years of my life because I was living in Edinburgh and working in London and commuting by plane because it was cheaper than living in London. Um, I met incredible people who are still friends to this day. I met a a couple of real plonkers who I'm quite glad not to have to ever (laughs) see again. Um, And I probably learned at the sharp end how to work outside education. And I saw that those guys and gals who produce incredible creative work that sells the world over all had the same way of thinking. Which, f- which is what? Which, which is uh, they design their thinking. Yeah. They think ahead about how they want to think and then they think like that. And they produce these crazily beautiful formats, programs, art. And I wondered how, how come in school... And the experience I'd just had with the government being so didactic and hierarchy-led and top-down, I wondered how on earth we could get some of that vibe into schools. And did you start to dig that out? Like when I when I hear you talk about your journey and and the nudge, and you say the nudge was from outside, but within yourself, I see that it might have had a lot to do with you know wanting to make a difference and wanting to change the way things were done because you couldn't tolerate it? There's a bit of that. There's also the fact that um, my job at Channel 4 was a two-year pilot and I was 20 months in. So I took the money and I ran. Yeah. Um, I would have I would have, I would have, been sacked eventually. I'm a terrible yeah. employee. Absolutely awful. That's why I, I like running a company because if, if I had to work for me, I would, I'd, I'd leave. Um, but was it, persist- <laughs> was it persistence? Was it... Um, Destiny, like, like, was it a combination of both? What? Probably destiny initially, because the persistence wasn't there. Um, I was fatigued, uh, so you're not persistent when you're fatigued. You're you're tired. You want to yeah. stop, and so I took um, the month of December. It took all of twenty one days to design the business model and the plan for what I wanted to try and do, and register a company and. Do it, launch that was it. the birth of No Touch. Yeah. And so December 21st, December 22nd, I had my first client. And the first client was enough to pay my mortgage on the house in which we are sat yeah. for the year, yeah. not the whole thing. But it was enough to make the payments. And I thought, okay, that's good. Yeah. Now we can eat pasta. And yeah. everything else was a bonus. And I set a target that year of um, 
you know, Maslow target. This is what I have to earn. This is what needs to be done. Thinking it was an astronomical figure and then realizing that it hadn't, that, that concentrating on that was totally fruitless. Yeah. I probably spent eight months, uh, trying to get work in the education sector and being totally unable to because I had dared take 20 months away from it. And if you take 20 months out of education, it's, it's, it's a wilderness. Yeah. Um, so most of that work the first year was thanks to Northern Film and Media in Newcastle in the northeast of England, uh, which meant I got to meet fab people like Chris Hart. We, yeah. we had my first date with Chris Hart in the Hilton Bar in Newcastle, or in Gateshead, I should say, because I was down doing business and he, he was, was a teacher there and he's now um absolutely fantastic facilitator down in Australia in Melbourne, yeah. doing a lot of work with Google and every time he posts what he's up to, um, I wish I could be a fly on the wall. So you meet, I met people like that in those first months that infected my thinking to a certain degree. But um, the first big education clients were in Australia. And that's because we were in the middle of a global crisis. They were now in late 2009 setting up a company at a point where no one's got any money in Europe. N- uh, 2010, no one's got any money in North America, so forget that. Um, North America is still one of the most hostile places to do any work if you're not American. Yeah. Um, so we scanned, I scanned, and I saw Australia. And I thought, okay. And I made a phone call, a Skype call. It was it was a phone call through Skype because I'm cheap and I didn't want to waste yeah. my phone bill. Yeah. And I phoned Bruce Dixon. Many people know Bruce's name. He's working with Will Richardson at the moment on, a, on Change School and a few things. Yeah. Um, and indebted to Bruce because... I phoned him up and he was with someone who should probably have been one of his clients, Danielle Carter at the Brisbane Catholic Education. And I said to him, look, um, I'm really struggling to get any schools understanding what we're trying to do here. Is there a chance I could do something with you? And he were said, you really clear on your understanding of what it was you were doing? So you had no. developed that model, but, <laughs> but you, had ref- you had begun to refine it. I'd said no. It was the most unrefined sugar you've ever seen in your life. It was molasses. It was, and it, it felt like molasses, like, like walking through it, trying to explain to someone what I did then. My and mother didn't know what I did. For, the more you, know, you explained it, the more did, uh, did you have more clarity the more you explained it? The first time we had proper clarity in what we were doing was in the summer of 2016. And, and so it took six years to get to a point where I could actually describe to people what we do and how we do it well. Uh, and that's another story. But that's invested effort. It's invested effort and it's actually paying someone from outside your company to come in and bash you over the head enough until the point where you're able to to express it and help you get that out. Back then, um, it was was really about relationships. And you'll see that. It's interesting because you see it in a lot of early stage consultants. um, You know, they're starting out. They'll often talk about their long-term relationships. That's all you've got when you start out. And then to turn it into something more than a relationship, it is hard work. It's a different journey altogether. If most consultants working on their own have to rely on relationships. And so that's exactly what was going on there. And the relationship there was Bruce who said, I'm next to an interesting person called Danny. Do you want to speak to her? And in 15 minutes, she said, that sounds interesting. Why don't you come over? And that was the first education client. And uh, So what sounds interesting? Like what idea... Had you presented that first captured her? Um, I said, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm passionate about students doing more of the learning instead of the teacher doing all the teaching. Yeah. And um, 
I'm applying that thinking in the world of television and filmmaking and um, a commercial digital products. Yeah. I've learned a ton and I want to share it with schools and it was as vague as that. Yeah. And Danny gave the, the, the signal to basically go and right, give us an introduction to that. And we, I used the term design thinking uh, almost by accident because it didn't have a name. It was August in that first year of business, just after I'd made that call. Bruce had actually said, come down and give a talk at the Independent Schools Conference in Lorne. And I didn't know what to give as a talk. So the title was really anodyne. It didn't say anything. I mean, you were hoping to provoke I could, them? I could, no, I could have talked about anything. The title of the talk was, I think it was like Keynote by Ewan McIntosh, and that was it. <laughs> and then, um, I had been reading all summer trying to work out what it was I'd seen at Channel 4 and discovered the phrase design thinking from a 1973-74 research paper where someone talked about designing thinking. Yeah. I thought, that, that'll work. That'll be good. I'll just use that. And then I came up with my own language to describe what I'd seen the creatives do at Channel 4, which was the idea of a big immersion, get immersed in your topic, synthesise it, work out what the what you're actually talking about, yeah. and then ideate, come up with some ideas, prototype them, and make sure you get some feedback. And that was without having read any of the common or garden texts that you'd expect now from the, the ideal founders or Roger Martin at Toronto Rotman, so on and so forth. But is, the, is one of the key things here in that process uh, uh, feedback? Yeah, I mean the feedback on even on that because there's that the, the you know the work the cognitive coaching model that we work within the framework that we work within at the Coast School in Saudi Arabia we've we've done a lot of we have a consultant from uh, a New Zealand inter he's uh, Tony Birkin from Interlead yeah you're Tony okay yeah, yeah. so, so no Tony, yeah. yeah so Tony comes in and and he is always trying to provoke people and. He gets right down to like feedback and he's like, you know what? Everybody wants praise. And if you're working within a praise model of, of feedback, that it's yeah. never going to work and you're never going to get better. So the, the hardest is, thing yeah. is the uh, creating a culture of critical feedback. You use the word culture, and uh, but you're also using the same sentence as the word model. And that's why it's so hard to create any change. When, when you talk about feedback, there's not one educator who's going to deny the fact that feedback's useful for advancing learning. But let's be honest, in a 45-minute lesson or a 50-minute lesson, you're going to sacrifice the 10 minutes of IB content you've got to teach so you can do some proper feedback. Yeah. I don't know one teacher who does that. Well, I do. <laughs> I do because we worked with them. But most teachers don't. Yeah. Uh, most teachers are too worried about pumping through the content. Um, the feedback is less about tools, strategies, and all these, yet another bloody thinking routine. And it's more about mindset. <laughs> yeah. It's more about, no, don't get me wrong. There's oh, nothing wrong with the routines. I know. But it's, it's like, you know, you're sat next to a drum kit and you don't just, I mean, I'd like to see someone just pick up the sticks having never learned. That's what my daughter's doing at the moment. She's thrashing about and there's the odd bit of rhythm comes out. But it's, it's, um, accidental if the rhythm's good uh, good old pipe band teaching you don't get to touch the drums until you've learned the rudiments and that's learning the tools that's sucking up as much Ron Berger as you can and, and buying all the, the David Perkins books and 
devouring the Harvard Project Zero website in your sleep, all that's fine. Um, it's not going to make you a great feedback environment in, a, in an institution because great feedback is all about mindset. And I've gone into brilliant schools, particularly in Asia. Yeah. And uh, if you say to a kid, uh, you know, eight-year-old kid, you say, ah, that's, that's a really good, uh, uh, I don't know, it's a really good wallet you've been making there in your craft design technology class, in your STEM class. Lovely little production. Now, how could we make it better? And I've had the kids burst into tears because no no one ever asks them that. Everyone just goes, awesome, great job. Yeah. And it's not awesome, it's mediocre at best. And you can probably do better. But because you, you're, you've wasted seven weeks producing this one thing and you've only got three lessons left, there's actually a fat chance of redesigning it and doing it a lot better. If you have feedback as a, as a, as a mindset that you just live by, then no one produces anything any in any way, shape or form close to finished without having asked for feedback on it. And you see it in you see it in every everything. I think the the best example is or you know, my best example that I would pull on is still Ron Berger's butterfly Austin's butterfly. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. Because the first butterfly is actually alright. And most mums and dads would be happy if Yeah, it kind of goes them. back and forth until the final one, which you look... Oh, it doesn't go back and forth. It gets worse. Yeah, it does. It gets yeah, really, that's, that's really bad. Like, it does get the worse. The third iteration then, yeah. is... I mean, the second iteration is an X-Wing fighter. The third iteration is like a, a vomit stain. And then there's this magical D-click moment where all those little bits of feedback come together and the kids have master, done a masterpiece. But has the, the teacher in that video, what's his name? Uh, the kid is Austin, but the the the, the whoever the researcher is Ron Berger. Okay. Yeah, but that that idea that you've got to scaffold the language that you use to give the kids a chance to be able to give feedback in an authentic. It's about way. expectations, isn't yeah. it? So if I'm doing something to show it to my critique group, it's because they're going to give me critique. If I'm doing something to show my teacher, the relationship's actually quite unclear. Yeah, am I going to get a grade, an opinion on this, or am I going to get feedback? Mm-hmm. So. When you're a teacher, and likewise, if you're a project manager in a huge industrial project, you've got to be so explicit on what you what your relationship is so that people don't hold things back. And I have the same challenge with my team every day in that they're, 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 you know, most of our challenge in our team is saying to people, just show it earlier, share the blank Google Doc before you write the proposal and let us choose if we dip in. Let us yeah. see how messy it is because you never know it might be that little bit of feedback early on that takes it somewhere you hadn't expected yeah and that's where the IB the PYP is is changing in 2018 right they're mm. releasing a new framework uh, assessment framework and um, they it, I guess it's not revolutionary but it's just an evolution of their understanding and I think that they understand that they were behind the times when it comes to assessment oh. and I think they're um, big thinking is to remove reference to formative and summative assessment mm. and focus more on purpose and intent. And, and that idea that you have to enter critical feedback much earlier in the process, which means that the teacher from day one has to provoke the student's thinking, hook them in, and co-construct success criteria as soon as possible in the unit. And all that's great, but... It's really interesting for the IB to do that. Um, I get why they're doing it. They need to do it. But most most teachers still see the IB as a curriculum. 
there's a bunch of stuff they have to teach. And yeah, especially at NYP and DP. Yeah. yeah. And they, and even if there are pedagogical suggestions in there, um, most teachers do a remarkable, remarkable job in not seeing it or it's not expressed clearly enough by the IB. Mm-hmm. There's so much work needs done, regardless of whether you teach the IB, to improve the, the approach, the mindset towards mm-hmm. feedback. And let's just pick on another examination system so we're, we're equal. The Sc- Scottish qualifications are the same. They are obsessed, really, by what you get at the end. And you can delay the exam as long as you want. You can um, give form, you know, uh, ongoing assessment as much of a place as you like. But um, there are still students who are not presented for examinations because the teachers and the leadership know that they're not going to get the grades that are required. Yeah. And, you know, let's let's not beat about the bush. It might be PYP and that's wonderful. Even at later stages of PYP, these kids and their parents are still already thinking about what's coming up ahead. And until, yeah. the, until the diploma explores otherness, yeah. what's out there, and I know they're trying, but... Th- it can go faster until the MYP um, stops trying in schools to be like a mini high school. Uh, you're still going to have that problem. Yeah. You know, middle school should, it, for me, is the time of where you have the greatest opportunity to explore feedback, great questioning, provocations. For sure. And for some reason, so many schools turn it into mini high school. And it shouldn't be that. It should, yeah. it should be much lighter, much more enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's that idea as well. Like I think the the PYP is building in this kind of they they want um, self adjusting. They 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 want kids' time to be given time to self adjust their learning based on being giving uh, given critical feedback earlier in the learning process, yeah. rather than waiting to, closer to the well, end. All of this has nothing to do with um, hypernational international organizations. That's a teacher's decision. Yeah. And um, I think one of the things we've succeeded in doing in, in the incubators that we run for schools and teachers and for the long relationships we have with schools is giving teachers the creative confidence to actually do their job and realise the curriculum will take care of itself as long as the mindset is in place first and foremost. And you get the mindset in place by having a few tools up your sleeve building skills particularly in feedback and questioning but also in um, being able to listen uh, uh, being able to pick up on the unobvious being able to see the uh, the unthinking actions in a piece of literature or mm-hmm. the unintended consequences all of these things are quite soft sounding but they're so important to get the kind of mindset where you can think divergently and think beyond the question you're being asked yeah and when you think back to kind of like in, in I guess, um, in, in learning, your own learning journey with Notosh, um, what were your big moments where either you realized, well, man, I've been doing this all wrong or I, I can't believe I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't rec- recognize that sooner or what, what were some big moments you might have had? <laughs> early on with Notosh that really changed the course of Notosh? Um, the, I think some of the biggest ones are to do with our own team and recognising... Personnel-wise? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot... Uh, you talk about People can talk about team till they're blue in the face and, and they don't actually play in a team. 
And I'd say that for the last 18 months, we've concentrated almost exclusively on team play and hiring people with very different skill sets to each other. And um, there's not one project that now that happens with only one consultant on the job, whereas before that could have been the case. And the the advantage of it, well, we've we've never had so many contracts. We've never had so many big, important pieces of work to do. We're, we're involved in school design projects that value $225 million, um, helping them prevent the kind of mistakes that could make it a $225 million mistake, mm. really plumbing into the community to find out what's going on. You can't do that alone. You need a team to do that. And I've never seen my team self-check more often than in the past 18 months, and no one is immune to it. So someone is always looking over your work, someone's always looking over your shoulder and making it better. And that's exceptional. And our, our clients benefit hugely. And in Europe, we've had we've always had about ninety to ninety five percent repeating every year from our clients in Europe and Asia, and in Australia, it always always been a bit less, and we took that as just being a, you know it's a bit more startup in Australia, so mm-hmm. finding its feet, and that figure is going up now fifteen twenty percent higher than it had been before, as people there realise that um, it's not just. Hamish or Lauren or Chantel who's who's showing up on your door, there's actually a really smart team behind it who are able to contribute in very different ways um, to make something that no school could ever do on its own and no individual consultant could ever do on their own. And I think for me, that's the biggest turning point in in the company's development, um, going from a standard crew of about three to being a standard crew of about 10. And all guided by the same success principles yeah by the same values um the same approach to work but at the same time allowing people to really build on their strengths there's no one doing work that they feel weak in because they there's someone who will feel strong in that in the team so the same the same idea of the the team that you're building at notosh is based on certain guiding principles and success principles are these the same guiding principles and success principles that you're trying to instill within educational leadership within institutions? No, no, I don't think so. They're particular to us. It is interesting sometimes you see it sneak into the strategy of a school. So one of our, our core thing is that our core purpose is to help people find the creative confidence to find a place in a team and create something bigger than they are. If you read the International School of Prague strategy, I think their big overall goal is, you know, to to uh, do more as a community than than any individual could do their own. It's kind of human nature. It's it, it should be human nature, and it's not. And I think as you talk about international mindedness and and looking what it means, it means finding people who complement you to achieve something bigger than you could ever do alone. I think that that's just, it's not human nature. I have to say human nature is do it yourself, claim the credit and move on. It's almost non-human nature to do that. And it's really hard work. The cost of collaboration is particularly high. And to give it a, to give a, an absolute cost to the cost of collaboration in the six years until last year, I think we invested one and a half million dollars in what we do. In the next, in the, the 18 months since then, we've invested one and a half million dollars. And in the 12 months to come, we'll have invested one and a half million dollars further. And we do that because 
the product at the end of the day, what these schools and what these companies are producing is absolutely worth it. And it's it for and from our perspective, it is generating even more interest in how other people might be able to touch the same success. Yeah. And what, what do you think leaders need to be aware of within themselves? And maybe this is even you uh, as a leader yourself. Um, but leaders in general, what do they have to be aware of within themselves when trying to do their very best and to to find people that compliment I th- them? I think it's you can be in a leadership team and really not know the people in your leadership team. And so spending, not being ashamed. Because you're clouded with... Oh, you're too busy your with your own, day job. <laughs> yeah. Is it just your own busy, you, just because you're so busy, or is it also maybe a little bit of ego as well? Oh, it could be. I think it, I think in school, genuinely, it's just the busyness of school. Yeah. I, think, I think it's the, it's a vortex that sucks you in. The, an upper school head may feel that they have absolutely nothing to learn of any urgence from a kindergarten head. And I, I'm a upper school French teacher. I get that. Yeah. Um, but if you don't give it time, of course there's nothing to learn. And so we've, we, I, th- I think actually people maybe use us in as, as an excuse to give their team time. <laughs> so they get together and yeah. they, we, we give some really interesting activities that help um, open that team up and show the strengths that they have and show the, the different attitudes and mindsets they have. And I've had a school, even in the past couple of weeks, where leadership team have been there for a long time and they didn't really know each other. They knew each other socially, but they didn't know each other's strengths. And then we asked, you know, after they had revealed their strengths through this particular very revealing exercise, I asked them over coffee, think about the big project you've got that's giving you a headache that you feel that you're gonna, it's going to be a bit mediocre if you try and do it. If there's someone else in this room who, who's actually got the mindset or the skill to pull it off and pull it over the line for you. And here's the complicated part is find a third person who could also help you, but who is also equally benefited by the two other people in the team. And I think they found their teams of three within about four minutes. They knew because they understood much better what was behind these, these people who are standing and moving around them all day. To what extent does trust also come into play? Trust you're, is huge. You're handing trust over. Yeah. If you're going to... It's the nature of the activities, which are often quite personal. Yeah. And, you know, asking people about their personal achievement, not their work achievement, but what do, what's the biggest thing in their personal achievement? And I think, you know, it's interesting, you did this TED Talk in Saudi Arabia, um, and I saw your photo, I saw your tweet or photo after you had done it, but I hadn't watched it until you flipped the link to me last night. Mm. And I've learned more in... in 12 minutes of watching that than in the four years that mm-hmm. I've, I've known you and known, known of your work and followed you around. Mm-hmm. There are some things that come out through very specific types of activity and actually it's important sometimes for your team to know them. Mm-hmm. And I think that leadership teams can sometimes be a bit fearful about going down that road because it feels like you know, we're really busy. We could probably spend that day making some Gantt charts instead. Yeah. Um, Taking the time out to hear each other and find those connections is is worth more than money can buy. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm interested in knowing now, like when you say, I agree too, and I see, you know, many administrators that I know just bombarded with things on a day to day basis, you know, mm. where they really cannot take the time to learn more about their teachers um, in 
your own case and the work that you do and the vision that you've had and the hard work you put into Notosh, you know, what do you have to be aware of within yourself? And, you know, like, what do you need to ensure that you always do to continue that learning mindset? Do you just learn naturally through the work that you do or do you need to set time aside? It's not natural because our work is particularly busy. And you, it's not just busy, but you, it's tiring. Uh, not just doing the work, but then moving to the next place to do it. And our work is interna- as international as it gets. So there's a few things. I think one is um, when the work comes in, um, very often people don't know what they want. They don't know what the problem is. It's a bit like a doctor consultation. I don't feel quite right. Mm-hmm. And uh, we spend a lot of time listening to people just to try and understand what might be up <coughs> and where we might be able to help and occasionally we can't help and we say to people go, go and speak to someone else um, but most often 99% of the time it, it's quite clear what the challenge might be because of the experience we've had in the past uh, what we will always do is try to avoid just building on the last gig that we did so someone tells me oh that's I can see what your problem is it's this and uh, yeah, we were with international school, blah blah, last week, and we can we can just roll that out to you again, because no school's the same. Every it's principal really tells you, yeah, yeah. So you got to keep listening, and I think that's the key skill that um, we have a, a great business development team. Horrible title, sounds very Wall Street like, Wolf of Wall Street like, but they're they're just great listeners. So I'm one of them. I've got Kynan in the states, and in Australia, the team as well, really keen to listen longer than they speak to try and understand really what the challenge is. And then there's always two people building up the proposal. So the stupid question will always come from the person that wasn't in that first meeting. And it's the stupid question that might reveal what the real challenge is. Then we go back to them. And and so, yeah, we're, we're learning, but we're really applying what we've learned before. In terms of learning from the projects that we've done, we have, um, we don't leave that to chance. We have a real quite rigorous process now that we didn't even have two years ago um, about 30% of the way through a, a project there's someone else from the team who chimes in and needs to understand everything straight away yeah. and very often they don't and so that's a good point that's where you say okay we, we thought we were doing well but where are we missing and we carry on um, we have a review at the end we um, have a production staff who will call up the various people involved in the project and ask the daft questions again and get good answers and when they don't get good answers they push even harder one of them is a former student of mine uh, and she um, not an educator by trade but she has the knack of asking the, the tough question that gets the the real thinking going sometimes it, it just makes us extend the project by a few more weeks to see you know, have we got all the evidence we need and we systemize all our team learning. So we have monthly R&D meets. Uh, we have the, the Notosh Mosh, which happens once a year. We live in the same house for a week. Oh, nice. It's, it's about as much as you can manage <laughs> with our team. Like an ultimate fight club or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we look at the <laughs> highlights. The case studies we produce, you know, we've got beautiful short case studies, but we have these really long versions for our team where they can understand exactly what the person did day to day, minute to minute, uh, the t- twists and turns of a, of a project. Um, and every every month when we meet, we talk about, you know, the, the things that brought us smiles and the things that brought us headaches. 
And with the headaches, we all try and offer each other some advice from things we've been working on that month that could resolve it. Mm. So the learning is constant, but quite structured. And um, there is no individual learning. And I'm, I'm quite adamant about that. There's no point in being part of our firm if you're a freelancer. So you learn something, you share it. Yeah. And not sharing it means people will, would go. Uh, and that's that's just a fact. But then set, setting the conditions for people to thrive by giving them permission to learn and continue to learn. But the expectation is that you share that learning. Yeah, absolutely. And we have we have periods in the year where there's no work. Yeah. You know, schools are off. So you're going to do less work. You're going to be working with insurance companies. No joke. <laughs> Winter time is normally when insurance companies come knocking on our door. Um, fine, you know, you're not going to be in school. That doesn't mean you stop thinking about school. You're working with the insurance company thinking, right, how would this apply to a kindergarten class? Um, and you're preparing the next new thing that we might do with our with our other clients all over the world. Yeah. And what's your what's your advice to kind of like you know, we talk about the importance of balance for our social and emotional well-being. But in, in regards to the work that you do and, and the travel that you do and, you know, your wonderful family and the the balance needed to sustain all of those things, yeah. um, what do you, you know, what are the obstacles that, that you experience and, and Mm. what strategies do you put into practice to ensure that you're trying to maintain balance? Rule number one is is don't travel 240,000 miles a year, which is what I did three years ago, four years ago. So those days are done. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. I'll be on, you know, I'm still 100,000 miles a year, but it's, it's actually not that much when you, it's a trip to Australia and then a few odds and sods. Yeah. Um, the, the balance thing I've, I've managed to get horribly off balance which maybe qualifies me to talk about what balance might look like um, I got horribly off balance uh, in your old school in Nanjing yeah. and it was uh, it was your your wife who was partly responsible for, for helping just find a little bit more of balance in that through her work uh, in mindfulness uh, you get horribly off balance when all you care about is work um, Or and, and the thing is I actually do care about work deeply as much as many other things in life. But I maybe, it's going to sound horrible, I maybe care a little bit less about other people. Because uh, the thing that the thing that really got me was worrying whether other, other people were happy. And I think it's taken me six quite tricky years to work out that I cannot be responsible for other people being happy. Yeah. It, I, I think everyone else knew this, but it took me some time. And... Um, you, you can't make every, you can't make anyone do anything and I realise that with kids you can't make kids like or do anything you can encourage and control and then there's a point where, where you just go stuff it I'm, yeah. I'm done so um, I had very bad experiences trying to please people and I've stopped trying to do that I just do my thing uh, or our thing and is that is that more confidence in the work that you do I know it works yeah does, does I, you can you can put me up the, against the most um, obnoxious, far away from the classroom school board. Find them for me, and I'm I'm not that confident. I'm still a bit nervous, but I'm pretty confident that yeah. what we're going to do is going to work and have an impact. To the point where if they if if they if, you know the education works more than any under any other industry I've ever seen on belief. 
You'll never hear an engineer saying, I believe. They know it or they don't know it. In school, I have people tell me that they don't believe 30 years of research is right. Well, you know, blow me down. Yeah. You know, and the, the same educator who says that hasn't read a bloody hasn't read a book in God knows how long, um, let alone a bit of education. Or reading the old ones that they yeah. read decades ago, right? Exactly. I've still got mine. Scottish Education, <laughs> yeah. 1998. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but actually we do know. And even if you don't know, even if you've never read an education research book in your life, I would love it if people just said, I've never done that before. That's quite interesting. I'm going to try and see. And if they don't like it, go and do some homework. Go and work out why you don't like it. But don't just say you don't like it. Mm. I've got a lot better at, at, at dealing with those. Yeah. They're everywhere. Um, but that's through experience and like confidence to yeah. maybe also be able to have enough stories of great success to show this is how you can do it. And rather, I think I went through that transition as well of, of, of kind of like, come on, work it out for yourself. Now I have enough stories that I can, I can show them, I can email them the story, and we do online coaching to support them. I guess we grew up. I guess we got mature about yeah. it too. I think that is, is, uh, even just three years ago, we were quite an immature bunch of people. Vision, um, vision, strong vision, but just, I guess, maybe refining the steps and your understanding of the work that you did. I think people misunderstood what yeah. it means to be passionate. Passionate yeah. does not mean that you piss everyone else around you off. Uh, passionate means that you listen actually much more than you speak. Yeah. And um, then when you've got something to say, say it. And it tends to have the effect that people listen back. Yeah. When um, we work, I'd like to say we work really hard on that. Actually, we've just hired exactly the right people to do that. Ian Stewart, who's a mile along the road, a trained counsellor, a former craft design technology teacher, came to teaching late in life, had a had a real job before as an apprentice electrician and then run yeah, a private yeah. company, travelled around Eastern Europe, uh, putting spare parts, selling spare parts and putting them into industrial machinery. And he's working alongside me with German engineers in Tussenkrupp reinventing how you transport energy from far-flung places back to where it's needed using chemicals I mean yeah. it's mind-blowing stuff he's good at that job because he listens more yeah. than he speaks Kynan Robinson in New York um, he's he talks more than I do but he knows when to listen as well mm-hmm. and as a facilitator you know we hired him as a as, as a, a, a business guy you know, help us develop the business he's one of the best facilitators I've ever seen very humble very um, gentle with people who you could get annoyed with because they don't seem to get it and in 20 minutes they've got it yeah. you know and then in Australia we've really we've really I've also I think an important thing is having uh, gender equality in our team so in Australia two out of our three big consultants there are some of the most talented uh, female educators in the whole country Chantelle Love and Lauren Johns in Sydney and back here in Europe our production team Carolyn and Mally um, really do a lot of invisible work that makes these big complex projects doable because yeah. they're the meaning makers. They're the ones who ask the awkward questions when no one was thinking about the awkward question and keep the consultant team uh, on the on the ball yeah. and making sure we're not we're not assuming things. Yeah. When if you like in knowing what you know now and if I can put you in a time machine and, and catapult you back 
let's say, to the 21-year-old Ewan or the 22-year-old Ewan, and you could jump out of the time machine and you had one minute with the 22-year-old Ewan, would you say something to him? I would say stop mucking about and just create the bloody company you thought you were going to create. Because I was going to create a company when I was 21. Okay, so the idea is start a company, but what would you tell him? Like, what, what other little, you've you got a minute, what two or three gems would oh, you tell him? Don't, well, first thing is don't listen too carefully to the voice of experience. Because every voice of experience told me not to do everything I've done. Uh, old, and, old and wise, maybe just old. So, <laughs> so belief in your own inner voice. Yeah, listen, yeah. sure. Uh, don't take everything as read. Uh, number two... You know that old saying, don't let the bastards get you down? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I spent too long uh, with mucking about with people who weren't serious about it. And by it, I mean the big goal. Yeah. They were serious about themselves and what they wanted out of it, but not, not about the whole thing. I think of Marcus Aurelius. You know Marcus Aurelius? The, the, a great, great book, a Roman, uh, Roman emperor. Uh, who wrote these amazing diaries uh, in the midst of war and death and yeah. destruction. And he wrote these diaries for himself. And they were found years later, uh, his chronicles. And he basically, more or less in a nutshell, said, you're going to meet an asshole every day. Yeah. And how are you going to deal with oh. that asshole? So it's like, it's like the response you know, it's, I'm sure I did those texts in standard grade Latin, yeah. but we never learned the Latin for arsehole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the point, I don't think I meet an arsehole every day. I think I'm very lucky that most of the people but I meet. But preparing yourself to respond. In, yeah, in they come up when you least expect them, I yeah. think. Um, I'm not phased by them. Again, maybe there's a little bit of confidence there. Um, I think the third thing, and, and super important, and it goes back to your balance point, and I don't believe in balance if you really want to do something big. You can't do it. If you have if you have had balance How many times you're gonna be imbalanced. Well yeah, you can if be you're imbalanced. Pursuing, yeah. My balance comes because I I'm lucky. I get to take seven weeks holiday in the summer. You, you find me an entrepreneur who's able to do that yeah. when they've not finished building their business. Yeah. Um but I choose to because I've got two schoolgirls uh, as as daughters and a school teacher wife. Of course I'm gonna if I can do seven weeks in the holiday, I'll do it. Um, of course it's not a holiday of course um, I, I actually sold more in my seven weeks in summer holiday than I did in the seven weeks of actually working beforehand was it because you refined your you know you had that small window to I did work not want to be in that phone call and I was going <laughs> to get it done no matter yeah. what um, balance is not possible if you're trying to achieve something big what you've got to do is put a use by date on it so I've got my use by date on my imbalance and you can probably tell from what I said that I'm approaching it rapidly. Yeah. And um, I have no shame in that. Uh, some people have shame in being imbalanced. And they say, oh, you know, you need to work less, concentrate on your family more. The worst thing you can say to me is, um, is, it not, is it not difficult being away from home? The answer is no. It's bloody marvellous. <laughs> I get to go to a nice hotel. Yeah. Um, I get to eat food that I'd never eat. Um and then when I go home, I have a more, I'm, I'm more home and more present present than most fathers who work seven till seven and are tired from transport and yeah. all the rest. So there is balance there. The imbalance is, is probably more psychological. 
and the imbalance is um, it goes back again to caring what other people think and maybe that's where I've, I've got better I care a lot less about other, what other people think um, but it doesn't stop me taking other people really seriously and I think that you can separate those two things and so um, I, I've never felt more responsible for my team but they've responded by producing a quality and, and pace of work that you could only dream of. And, and you know, for the next, the next two, three years is really the test for us. We're going to hit our 10th birthday in two years. Wow. And in 10 years, you've got to be able to say, what did we do? Yeah. And did it, did it nudge education forward? And you know what? If it hadn't done it in 10 years, I probably would stop. Yeah. Because it just wasn't working the way that you, that you saw it. But yeah, I can tell you now it's not going to stop. Yeah. We're doing it. <laughs> well, that's a nice point to segue over to. I had you listen to Margaret Heffernan's audio clip. I'm going to have you listen to it again. Yeah. Um, but Margaret is uh, is pretty amazing, and I, I love her work. And I, I use um, parts of different podcasts from the TED Radio Hour on my podcast, depending on my guest, but uh, the one I'm going to have you listen to has to do with the meaning of work. And I, mm-hmm. I really thought about you um, when I thought about which clip I wanted to play for you because it really is about the meaning of work as you described. Mm-hmm. You love what you do and you're passionate about it. So I'm going to have you listen. It's about a minute long. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, just kind of after you listen to it, just share what resonates the most with you. Okay. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck, again, you know, the large number of companies I work with, and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target. You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. It's really interesting, the first little throwaway phrase that she said around connectivity of people. And none of our company really see each other face-to-face for vast tracts of the year, yet we have this real connectivity because we're, we have a common goal that we're all working towards. You don't need to see everyone every day to have that sense of we're together. And it's certainly not Slack and the chat that's happening there that's doing yeah. it. Um, and money, money is the probably the main reason for any mistake our company has made has been to do with money. Um, People um, asking for more of it. People wanting to pay less of it. (laughs) Um, Anything to do with money generally turns me off to the point I would let it go, whether it's an employee or whether it's uh, a contract. And I've done it. And it's so much, it's such a weight off your shoulders. And her point about money is true. I think schools are maybe cynical about that. They think, oh, no, companies really do want to make money. Actually, not at all costs. And if I'd wanted to make money, I wouldn't have started a company. I would have just gone and done what I do. And, you know, I don't, I'd be richer if I didn't have a company. 
in financial terms. Yeah. I'd be much, much sadder <laughs> because we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to create what we've created and we wouldn't have achieved what we've achieved in things that really matter, not just schools and education, in green energy, in automated driving, in the way that employees get treated in call centres. You know, we've had these huge successes, many of which we can't even talk about because they're tied up. Right. <laughs> um, that's what it's about. And it's you know, what do you talk about when you come home to your kids. I love the fact that I can talk about inventions I've had a hand in. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I love the fact that I say, you know, on Monday I'm going to be with this uh, team of this board and the board's got more pharmaceutical chief executives on it than you could than you could believe. And then on Tuesday I'm going to be with, with Lego creating something ridiculous that you'll be able to be part of. And then on Friday I'm going to be back in Switzerland with this leadership team who I know really well but who think that you know even though they're doing this absolutely stellar job they could still do better and I haven't a clue how they could do better because they're doing so well already you know that's cool stuff to talk about what I can't stand is when you know someone's made a big fee from something they take the selfie of themselves at the place and then they don't tell you a darn thing that they did yeah, and that to me says you don't know what you did because if you did, you'd tell us. Yeah, and in in learning, there's no such thing as confidentiality clause because yeah. no learning that any of us do had had that on when we learned how to do it the first time. Right? Yeah, excellent. Um, I'm going to transition over. I told you about the speed round. I I, I gave you only one of the questions that I'm going to ask, but mm, which I've forgotten already. Okay, well, the speed <laughs> round is essentially I'm going to ask you three or four questions. So your job is to answer the question as succinctly as you can with mm-hmm. really no detail. Okay. And then after I ask the four questions or three questions, I'm still deciding, mm-hmm. um, you're going to reflect on one of those areas mm-hmm. and then leave people with one last piece of advice related to that question. Okay. So I'm going to turn around right now. I'm sitting in your office and I'm looking at your bookshelf. So the first question, speed round, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Ding, ding. Here we go. The best book you've ever read outside of education that has tremendous meaning to you and is applicable to the work that you do in education. So smile in the mind. A smile in the mind. I love it. Tell people about it. What well, actually no, it's a short it's yeah. a short thing, but just it's a book little little, with, little bit. It's a book with almost no words in it. Because shapes can bring a smile in your mind. And the subtlety of having a smile in your mind versus the unsubtle uh, obnoxiousness of people laughing out loud at humour. Oh, That's what we're all about. I love it. <laughs> Every new member of staff in Notosh gets a copy of that when they join. I'm going to take a picture of that for the show notes. <laughs> uh, second question, you're going to complete this sentence. My biggest fear is... Oh, my biggest fear is being a boring old fart. Full stop. Full stop. Question three, <laughs> are we ready for question yeah. three? Question three, the greatest lesson that your mother or father ever taught you? Uh, make sure you practice. There's a drum kit in the corner. And since I was, when I was 10, I think, um, I got co-opted to play cymbals uh, in a piece of music that the school orchestra up in the high school were playing. The Earl of Oxford's March. You can segue a bit of the music in now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played cymbals in that beautifully. And I thought I was a percussionist. And then I, I, I wanted to play the drums and realised it was a lot harder. <laughs> uh, and so even today, I practised for an hour uh, before my daughter came in. Good workout. And practised for an hour. Really good workout. And um, 
yeah, practice and the same is true in life, yeah. in work. You know, if things aren't going your right way, practice. Yeah, excellent. Uh, okay, the last question is if at the end of your career somebody was to write a book about your life, hmm. what would the title of that book be? Uh, you can't they said he did you can't they said he did yeah I love it okay so we're going to now look uh, at those four (laughs) questions so the best book Mm. um, your biggest fear the greatest lesson your parents ever taught you uh, if there was a book written about you, what would the title be? Now, zero in on one of those areas. Uh, I'll go for practice. Then, okay, and then leave people with one last piece. It's of the most obvious one. I think the the more practiced you are, I mean, to, let's be honest, anyone listening to this podcast is probably fairly practiced in their job. I don't think you've got amateurs listening uh, to, how, to this kind of stuff yeah. for this long. Yeah. Uh, they probably think they're doing pretty well and they're trying to learn something new. Actually, the biggest learning is probably under your nose and it probably involves um, looking back at something that that you're quite good at. Not the thing you're really good at and you tell all your friends about or you blog about or you podcast about. What's the thing that you're not quite good about, good at? And then go and really practice it. And that doesn't mean sitting at your drum kit with Dua Lipa screaming through your headphones pretending to play her drums. It means turning the music off and getting back to your rudiments and learning how to do a paradiddle uh, on all five drums and all three cymbals uh, without breaking a sweat. I can't do it yet, and I've been trying for the best part of 30 years. <laughs> um, you got to keep practising until you get it. And and everyone's got something like that. Every team has something like that, and you can practise it together, and you can show each other where, where practice is due. All I would say is don't practise something that you're really bad at. Uh, which is why I never pick up my daughter's trombone. It would be a lost cause. And and I'm just looking at the dip, knowing when to quit. <laughs> you know, like, I know that's a, that's not one of your favorite Seth Godin books, but it's no. that idea that, you know, if you're really struggling with something, know when to quit and know when me- maybe you need to redirect your focus in a different area. I disagree with Seth. That's why it's not my favorite book. <laughs> you don't quit. You find yourself a team. And you get someone who does know how to do it, to do it, so you can to then support shine. support you through it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're in a school, there is someone who does it better than you. Go yeah. and find out who it is and get yeah. them involved. And that's why The Dip's a crap book and no one should in education should buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. As it sits there on your shelf, maybe we'll just... It's quite it low down, though. Yeah, you yeah. would have to, you'd yeah. have to remove quite a lot of books yeah. to get there. So you and where can people find you? Um, I know it's not hard <laughs> to find you if they just Google your name. But, New Haven uh, Harbour, Edinburgh. Um, or <laughs> uh, just randomly walking about um, on Twitter um, we've there's my name there's also the company Notosh that you can follow there I love Medium for blogging that lovely clean site so medium.com forward slash Notosh how often are you blogging on that? irregularly but yeah. um, it's just worth the wait every time um, does something just come to you and you do it or you plan yeah, events? Normally, yeah normally through work there's something cool that's yeah. happened I want to write about it I wrote a book um, that I'm, I'm trying to write a second book, but it's harder work than it looks. And the the book was uh, probably early before its time, uh, but it is really good and actually gives quite a lot of the answers to the questions people phone us up with every day. And um, 
you know what, notosh.com, there's a button there called contact us. That's actually the easiest way to find out where I am because when you send email to that with the slightest question, it always informs us as to what people have headaches about. So you might not want to have us come to your school. You might not want online coaching. But even just sending us your question would be such a help because it helps us maybe form something that helps another school. And in the meantime, we can send you a quick response or have a, a video chat. Yeah. yeah so just um, we're pretty open. Yeah. I would say don't don't read. Get involved. Mm-hmm. Action. Yeah, yeah. Take part. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we did this. It's been fun. Yeah. And uh, everybody, I'll uh, have more information about you and in the show notes. Um, I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. And uh, thanks again to you and for taking the time to be on my Run Your Life podcast. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.